Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Scrubbed In podcast. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we have with us another amazing guest. We have with us Professor Majid, who is the Professor of Primary Care and Public Health and is also the Head of the Department of Primary Care and Public Health at Imperial College London. He's also one of the very few accredited in both general practice and public health medicine. There are far too many accolades to mention about Professor and the incredible work he has done. Um, but it's a massive pleasure having you on the show today, Professor. How are you? Uh, thank you. It's a great pleasure to be on your show. Thank you for inviting me. No, Amazing. it's an absolute pleasure for us. I know you've achieved so much, but we want to take it to the very beginning. A, a young Majid, tell us, you know, how and when you decided you want to pursue medicine and kind of bring us up to present day, if you don't mind. Uh, yeah, so I started my interest in, in, in school. So in school, I was always very good at maths and, uh, and science. Uh, and medicine always held an interest for me. Uh, there are no doctors in my immediate family, so you know I, I had no no role models. But I had an interest in mm. in medicine, you know, which I th- which I saw as combining uh, a good professional career with also helping others as well. Mm. So that kind of drove me towards medicine uh, towards the end of my my school days when I was applying for university courses. Definitely. And where did you apply to do medicine? So where which medical school yeah. did you go to? Um, so I, 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 um, I, my family lived in South Wales. Mm. So I applied to Cardiff, which at that time was the only medical school in Wales. Mm. There are now a few others there, but at the time that was the only one. So that was my first choice. Then I applied to various English medical schools as well. Yeah. I think Manchester, Southampton, uh, King's College. You know, it's quite a long time ago now. Yeah. But, uh, but Cardiff was my first choice because uh, you know, I'd gone to primary school and secondary school in Wales. Mm. And my family lived in Wales as well. So it was a natural first choice for me to uh, mm. to choose as, 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 my, as my university. Definitely. So... If someone to kind of search you up and see you've done a lot of research, a lot of work in the public health domain, has that always been an interest from you from the very beginning, or is this something you've discovered and had a passion for? Um, so uh, it's something I, the, the, my interest in public health uh, came during my 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 medical uh, work in South Wales. So mm-hmm. working in South Wales, it's an area which has uh, in the past had a very strong industrial base. Mm-hmm. So lots of coal mining, steel. Iron uh, working and so on, um, and so when you work in in South Wales as a student and then as a doctor, you come across many people who've uh, got problems linked to their mm-hmm. their um, previous uh, occupation. Uh, so a lot of coal miners with very bad lung disease, steel workers, uh, etc., with very bad occupational health problems. Yeah, um, this is quite a long time ago now, and those industries have you know have now largely shut down. But but when I was a student, there were still a lot of men who'd worked in those industries. Also in South Wales, it is one of the poorer parts of, of the UK. Mm. So again, you see a lot of uh, health inequalities, social inequalities, income inequalities. So that's really when I began to require an interest in, in, in what you might call the wider aspects of health, you know, beyond kind of biology and, and pathology. So looking at things like education, housing, income, yeah. etc., and how those affect no. uh, people's health. Definitely. And just taking it a bit back, tell us, you know, having gone to medical school and graduating, Describe those first few years of being a doctor, um, kind of happy moments for you and some of yeah, the difficulties so, you faced. Yeah, so qualify, the day you qualify is a very happy moment. So when you get your okay. piece of paper that you've passed, that's terrific news because obviously it's yeah. a very stressful day for everyone waiting for your bit of paper to come. Yeah. Because uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's uh, obviously if you have to reset, it's not very good news. Um, 
so that was clearly an excellent day you know unfortunately a few people in the year didn't pass and that's always very sad mm. uh but you know it's a great day for those of us who did pass uh and then uh, being from south wales people generally do all the house jobs in south wales so i did my house jobs in south wales in west mm. wales and then in cardiff and then in the valleys of south wales uh so i spent a year working in different rotations you know one quite rural one big city in cardiff and then uh what one kind of uh, semi-rural location in the valleys which was uh close to coal mines and so on and still work so i had quite a diverse uh, medical training uh in, in my first year after my first year um I then chose to do GP training again in South Wales. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did a range of jobs in elderly care, cardiology, dermatology, general yeah. medicine, uh, obstetrics and gynecology, um, accident emergency orthopedics, uh, and general practice, of course. So mm. I did quite a wide clinical training. And mm. in those days, um, uh, medicine was very general. So, uh, you know, like, unlike now, now it's very specialized when you do rotation. Yeah. In those days, with general surgery, you know, it was very, very general. If you did orthopedics, it was very general. Uh, nowadays, you might do orthopedics and have a surgeon who just does knee operations, for example. That's, <laughs> yeah. your, that's your entire that's your uh, orthopedics. Yeah. But in those days, it was very general. You know, so so bedding those jobs, you've got quite a wide experience of, of different things. The same with any again, you know, there was no separate any for pediatrics, ophthalmology, uh, adults. It was all one any, and so everything from neonates, you know, right through to people who are very old, and all kinds of problems. So it was great experience and, and great learning. Mm. What prompted you? What kind of was the deciding factor, if there was one, for pursuing a career in general practice as to surgery or orthopedics? Uh, at the time, um, uh, I wanted to, to pursue a generalist career. Mm. Um, so, you know, general practice appealed to me. Uh, towards the end of my career, of my GP training, though, I kind of had additional thoughts. So in that time, you know, I acquired this interest in, in wider public health and wider health issues. And so rather than go straight to the GP post, once I finished my GP training, yeah. I then chose to train in public health, which took another five years, so <laughs> yeah. I did five more years to my training, but it, but it was very worthwhile. Mm. I worked initially in Gloucester um, for two and a half years, so I did a lot of work in outbreak control, uh, which in hindsight proved very useful in the current pandemic mm. experience. I worked you know, dealing with outbreaks of meningitis, hepatitis, yeah. TB, and other infectious diseases, so I spent two and a half years doing that kind of work. No. Uh, and then I moved to a post in London as a, as a lecturer in public health at St. George's Hospital. Yeah. Um, after two and a half years to kind of extend my my my, my research yeah. uh, skills, so I did do some research in Gloucester around mm. hepatitis and, and some other aspects of, of public health, and that then led to me getting a job as an academic lecturer in St George's Hospital uh, in 1992. Mm. Amazing. With regards to now public health, um, I think a lot of us juniors, maybe medical students, we see it as a lot of it's it's a research-facing um, occupation. Give us a real insight into what is it really like to be in a in a public in the public health sphere, and what does it actually involve when it comes to a a day to day job? What is it? What do you what are you um, actually public doing? Public health is, is very diverse, so so mm-hmm. there's no one single career path. Some people like me choose to do a uh, an, an academic career path mm-hmm. uh, combined with some clinical work. Others might work in infectious disease control, so work at Public Health England, um, for example. Um, uh, others might work in central government in health policy and healthcare management. Others might work mm-hmm. in local governments dealing with more immediate public health issues. So it's very diverse. So there's no one single uh, path. Uh, the one thing about all those jobs, though, is you're dealing with, with population health issues and not with single patients. So unlike a clinical job where you're dealing with one patient at a time mm-hmm. in public health, whether it's in research or whether it's in the civil service or in um, 
controlling outbreaks of infectious diseases or in local government, you're dealing with populations rather than individuals. Mm, mm. Definitely. And what's it been particularly like? So we've now gone through, we're still probably going through it, the COVID pandemic. What's it been like for particularly for someone like you in that role? Um, yeah, so uh, in many ways, it's been very interesting. You know, I mean, clearly it's a very tragic pandemic globally. Yeah. You know, we have millions infected, hundreds of thousands of people have died globally, mm. uh, including, you know, hundreds of thousands plus in, in, in the UK. Yeah. Uh, so it's been, you know, a real shock to, 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 to the globe. Uh, but for public health professionals like myself, it did kind of bring us to the forefront. Um, yeah. So from being in a kind of, in a, in a session that wasn't um, perhaps at the forefront of a lot of things, suddenly we were at the forefront of dealing with the pandemic, whether that was dealing with it locally, nationally, internationally. So colleagues, you know, work with WHO, others work with national government in the UK, mm. uh, others work locally with, with NHS or with local authorities. So suddenly public health um, um, staff became very prominent in this pandemic in my own case. Uh, I published quite, you know, quite a lot of articles around COVID-19, appeared in the media, yeah. um, you know, worked for newspapers and so on, which was work I'd not really done very much mm. uh, before. No, definitely. Um, one thing I wanted to touch on, and our listeners are quite interested here, is you're a professor and the head of a department. What skills would you say you've developed or you feel makes a good leader, someone that's responsible for lots of people? Um, yeah, so I'm head of a department of 150 people, so it's a you know, reasonably sized department. I think there are a few attributes you need to have. Yep. Uh, one is uh, to be fair to people, you know, so you don't have favourites, you know, so treat all staff equally mm. and politely and don't favour, you know, don't, don't um, uh, show, treat some better than others. So treat everyone the same, whether it's someone who's a junior researcher just starting uh, an, an admin officer or someone who's a senior professor. Yeah. So treat everyone politely and, and fairly. Uh, secondly, I think give people autonomy to do their job. Mm. So I try to let people do their job without too much interference from myself. So I'm not a kind of control freak who insists on seeing everything. You know, so let people, I give people autonomy to do their job. And I find that works works well. People then generally you know produce more than they would if they were tightly controlled. Uh, try to have a vision for what you want to do for your for your department or, yeah. or, or your team, um, and be successful in getting money. That's the key thing of being in a department. <laughs> very important. Money. Yeah. Uh, for research and teaching, so that's also very important as well. Without that, everything would, would, would fall apart. So I think there's a number, number of things which are, are useful, I think. No, definitely. Mm. Um, tell us a bit about your role for WHO. Um, you took quite a significant role. We hear about it, it's always on the news, but what did it actually entail? And tell us what you did. For um, so in my department, we, we have what's called a WHO Collaborating Centre. Yeah. Ours is in public health education and training. So for many years, you worked with WHO. Um, around the world uh, in training health professionals in things like um, research skills, health needs assessment, healthcare planning, health management, uh, etc. So we've had quite a large training program. Uh, we've done a lot of work in the Middle East, for example, in countries like Iraq, uh, Saudi yeah. Arabia, uh, and elsewhere in South Asia. We also work in places like South America, uh, Southeast Asia. So our work is focused really around uh, training people in public health, mm. Uh, training them in in health policy, health management, uh, needs assessment, and key disciplines for population health management. And again, during the pandemic, we've those skills have been very useful to us. We've done more work with WHO mm, in the last yeah. year, uh, focused around the pandemic, and that's been very helpful for us and and, and for the people we work with as well. Yeah. What what was it like during so during that during the pandemic, the peak of the pandemic, and during especially the beginning when everything was uncertain when 
um, policies were changing, the PPE guidance was changing on a daily basis, different guidances were given to doctors that Monday would be one thing, by Wednesday would be another. What was it like to be on the on the end of discovery? Where yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it was a very confusing time, as you said, because this was a new disease which people hadn't experienced before. People weren't really f- fully aware of its consequences. Of its consequences, even now, people are still learning about the disease. Exactly. Um, so you know, you probably remember about a year or so ago, in in, in March, April last year, there was confusion around PPE. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of doctors and other healthcare workers got infected. And many of those workers unfortunately died. Yeah. Uh, some not very old. You know, so that was very tragic that our colleagues uh, uh, did die. Uh, there was also concern, I think, about the government's slow response. So the government was slow to get testing up and running, slow with contact tracing and isolation, uh, slow with its lockdown. And again, you know, a lot of people were very critical of that. Mm-hmm. The government was very slow at the start, and, and perhaps by doing that uh, and, and being so slow, we did um, unfortunately lose a lot of people uh, that way. Um, so it was difficult, and you know, one of the things it did encourage though was was learning, and mm. so we worked together with people globally, you know, for, in, in particular from China, where the where the infection started, and other countries to learn more about it, mm. and that's where we learned about, for example, PPE. So in China, once they started using high spec PPE, they really cut the infection rate in their healthcare workers substantially, and really cut the death rate in those um, in those workers uh, mm. to almost zero. Uh, so I think we did learn a lot from from our colleagues overseas because they were ahead of us in terms of yeah. the pandemic hitting them first so places like china and then italy uh, and so we did learn a lot from from working with our colleagues and reading their research and talking to people people overseas but, but it was a very confusing time the things have now improved so we're now more aware of the importance of ppe mm. we're more aware of the fact the virus is, is airborne which wasn't the case a year ago so we, we know about things like ventilation and how important that is uh we now have vaccines which is a remarkable achievement we know that within 12 months yeah we produce very effective vaccines that work against COVID-19. So we're already placed than we were 12, 13, 14 months ago when this pandemic first hit the UK, when we had a very high number of cases and uh, and a lot of people dying tragically. No, definitely. If in the, God forbid, in the future, another, another unknown, uh, not well researched into virus like the coronavirus were to hit us again, what learning points do you think that we could take from this pandemic and apply it for something that could possibly hit us in the future? Yeah, that's a very good uh, question. I think we have learned um, a lot. Uh, I think one is the importance of international collaboration very early on. Mm. So mm. share data on things like genomics, epidemiology, risk factors, uh, treatments. Uh, so that, that that's um, one important thing. The second is um, to have research that can start very quickly. Uh, so yeah. we need research on the epidemiology of the new disease, yeah. uh, on how to control it, how to treat it. So we've shown in the past year that we can actually cut the time taken to run research studies, uh, whether it's vaccines or drugs, um, and run those very quickly. So that's another another learning point. Um, I think a third point is that countries need to be self-sufficient in how they manage the outbreak, so in mm. terms of producing drugs and so on. So we've seen in the past year countries scrambling over, over vaccines, over PPE, yeah. um, and that's been very unfortunate. But, but I think it does illustrate that large countries like the UK need to be able to uh, produce vaccines quickly, yeah. produce PPE quickly when needed, uh, produce drugs quickly. So if 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 we vaccines, uh, as an example, uh, the UK historically has not been a big producer of vaccines. We rely mainly on vaccines produced by the EU and yeah. the US and and, and uh, India. But I think the pandemic showed that vaccine manufacturing is a key industry, and the UK needs to invest in that so that if there's a future pandemic, 
we have everything available from the basic research in labs yeah. right through to mass producing vaccines at the other end. Mm-hmm. It's actually quite a complex process of things people didn't realize. So it's, it's not just a question of producing a vaccine in a lab. You then got to have factories that can produce a vaccine. Those factories need chemicals, they need chemicals and reagents. They need materials like large sterile plastic bags, which yeah. people didn't realize yeah. at the time. So actually, um, vaccine production actually is quite complex. And so that for many key products, there was actually a shortage globally. Not so much, not so much the vaccines themselves, but of the key things you need to make the vaccines, like these large bags in which you culture the uh, vaccine media or, yeah. or grow the vaccine media. Mm. So I think one key lesson is the UK really needs to be uh, self-sufficient to have its own industry for vaccine production, as I mentioned, from basic research in labs right through to mass production of vaccines at the other end. No, mm. definitely. And I think the pandemic gave us a key insight into how important that is as a nation. Talking about research, um, a lot of people want to pursue an academic career, a research-heavy career. What advice would you give to someone starting out in research um, to become a researcher? Um, so I think um, I think things are better now than, than when I was a student. So when I was a student, I had no research experience whatsoever. It only came much later on after I after I qualified. Yeah. Uh, but now you can work local, you know, in your medical school if you're a doctor. Uh, you know, form links with a team that interests you. Uh, do an internship, voluntary work, mm. a student placement. So start early on, uh, get some research skills. Uh, most medical schools now for a BSc year. Yeah. So pick a subject that suits you, uh, where again you require additional research skills. Um, and then when you qualify, you can apply for academic foundation posts. Um, obviously those are limited, but even if you don't get a post, you can still do research with with the team you're working with. Uh, uh, and then later on there are other fellowships available uh, from NHR and elsewhere. So I think, you know, start early, try yeah. to pursue academic interests, form links in the area you want to work with uh, and go for it. And the other thing to be aware of is uh, not to be afraid of failure mm. or rejection. So I've been telling many times for jobs, um, you know, so don't be afraid of rejection. <laughs> uh, you have to be a bit thick skinned, you know, be determined yeah. and just pursue your aims. You know, so when I applied for jobs, often I, I wasn't appointed to those jobs. Okay. But yeah, I still make a professor you know, at quite a young age. Yeah. Uh, so don't, don't be deterred by, by failure or, or rejection. Mm. How was that moment for you? Uh, I know you've been a professor for a while now, but to, to finally become a professor, how, how were you feeling at the time? What was it for you to become a professor? Uh, it, was a, uh, yeah, it was a great feeling. It was like when you qualify in medicine. <laughs> yeah. So th- th- this was at UCL where I was working at the time. So I was made a personal chair. Um, around the age of 40 so it was a great achievement you know you know it was like when i qualified at the same kind of relation yeah you feel mm-hmm. you've, you know, you've crossed two big barriers one qualifying as a doctor yeah of course when you're young and one qualifying as a professor when you're when you're older yeah mm-hmm. saying that i recently saw a tweet you did and you you described you know your 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 life at work you know published hundreds of papers you know at the forefront of research and then it was about your kid <laughs> when you went home you know it was where's the phone where's the wi-fi how do you balance kind of churning up papers, managing people, leading a department, while at the same time, you know, being there as a family individual, a family man? Yeah, uh, yeah clearly it's very important um, to have that work-life balance. When people die, no one says, I wish I'd spend more time at work. You know, <laughs> yeah. thing, I wish I'd spend more time with my family. So I think it's very important to have that quality time um, with your family, particularly when your kids are young, you know, and they need you more yeah. when, when they're older. Um, so I think you have to kind of carve out that time. The way the way I do it, you know, I, I stay at work. I work often late, but then weekends uh, I'll spend time with the family. You know, mm. at weekends and we have holidays every as well regularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so make sure you take your holidays as well. 
you know, don't not take your <laughs> annual leave. Mm. Uh, so you have to kind of carve out that 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 balance between work and um, and uh, your family life. Clearly, if you want to succeed, you have to work hard. Yeah, of course. At the same time, you also you know need to support your family and, and help them as well. Mm. Uh, so you have to kind of have that balance between the two. No, definitely. Describe to us what an average week looks like in your world, because you still do clinical practice while you know running a department. So what does an average yeah. week look like? Well, it's quite different now because everyone's working okay. remotely. Yeah. Uh, but let's assume we were back to normal again yeah. and it wasn't uh, remote working. Um, um, so I have a day in clinical practice, uh, which is which, which takes up one day. So I'm dealing with you know these all GP issues, you know, yeah. mixture telephone consultations, face-to-face consults, home visits, uh, mm. letters, etc. Looking at lab results, uh, practice meetings. That, that that's one day. The other four days, it's um, quite a mix. So some is spent on management. So being head of department, I have to manage hundred plus people. Uh, so doing oh, wow. people's appraisals, setting them targets, uh, looking at budgets, uh, meetings with senior staff like the dean of medicine or, or others to look at strategy. So that's part of the week. Um, another part is my own uh, research team. So working with them on my research outputs, research papers. Uh, I still try and write papers, so a lot of okay. these days I'm not first author very much. Um, I still do try to write some papers and be first author of those papers. Mm. Um, and then there's teaching, so that teaching encompasses everything from undergraduate to postgraduate. Uh, so that's also an important um, uh, uh, task for, for academics. Mm. Uh, so it's quite diverse, uh, yeah. a mixture of management duties, a mixture of research duties, teaching mm. duties, um, mm. and some allows them with NHS and, and other bodies. Of course. I'd like I'd like to just pick up uh, on general practice a little bit again. Um, so general practice is under incredible pressure at the moment, and I don't think people are fully aware of the pressures, and the public also probably aren't aware. I work in an A and E department, and it's almost regularly I hear a patient say the GPs are closed, the GPs aren't seeing anyone, or there's no appointments available, and it's. Um, just just give us a bit of insight into yeah. the, the world of general practice and what the current situation is like, because I can tell it's being, it's under incredible, incredible pressure. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, like a and is I know it's also under great pressure as well. Mm-hmm. I think with general practice, um, uh, it has changed a lot when I first started. Um, uh, and we have made great innovations, you know, for example, using electric medical records, which mm-hmm. are now uniform now across general practice. Uh, but other things have changed. Um, so... There's a lot more admin work than when I first qualified. So when I first qualified, you know, notes weren't very, very detailed. Mm. Uh, you know, often it was just one line per consult when people came to see you. <laughs> when people see you, um, you know, you, you might remember we had those. Very, well, you may not remember you were quite young, but you used to have these very small, what were called Lloyd George cards. You might have seen them on somewhere. Mm. Um, so, so one is the admin workload is is really mushroomed, and I've always felt there's too much admin for doctors generally, not just GPs, but all doctors. Yeah, brought too much admin. Uh, to do, um, and that needs to be cut back for all kinds of doctors. Uh, the other issue is the GP workforce hasn't really grown much in uh, in the last 10, 15 years. So if you look at, say, for example, emergency medicine or other disciplines, they're under pressure, but the workforce has increased mm. uh, over the last 15 years, whereas general practice, if you look at the, in England, the per, number of GPs per thousand people, that's actually gone down in the last 10, 15 years, despite increasing workload. So mm. what it means is... Um, there's a big gap between supply and demand. So yeah. on the one side, you've got sort of GPs, practice nurses, uh, and then you've got the demand for, for care from patients. And unfortunately, there's a big gap between the two. So as a GP, no matter how hard you, how hard you work, mm. you can't fill that 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 demand yeah. just because it's too big. 
And so what we need really is to, uh, I think one really look at the GP's job and take away a lot of the non-essential work. So a lot of the admin work I think needs to just go. Yeah. Um, it just takes from your, your clinical work. And secondly, we need to expand the workforce so it has the same kind of expansion that we've seen in, in, in some medical disciplines over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, but GP has been unfortunately largely, largely static or in fact actually gone down in terms of the number of GPs per capita over the last 10, 15 yeah. years in England. So it's really this, I think that's the fundamental problem is just the, like, the work, GP work, workforce has not increased and, and no matter how hard you work, mm. you just can't meet the demand because yeah, there aren't, just aren't enough GPs to do that. And that's very unfortunate because people then get the impression that GPs are, you know, aren't doing anything, you know, yeah. they, can't get, they can't get appointments. But, but they don't ask, you know, uh, why can't I get an appointment? And the reason why you can't get an appointment is because they're all working, you know, 100% and, exactly. and they don't more capacity to offer appointments. So the answer, you know, is to look at the job, take away some of the non-essential admin tasks, but also really expand the workforce uh, substantially yeah. as well. So there's more capacity to offer appointments. Yeah. Do you think the, the current model is sustainable? Because whilst talking about our workforce, uh, whilst trying to meet that demand, appointments in 10 minutes, in five minutes, where they're not only seeing the patient, examining the patient, documenting, doing the referrals, organizing bloods, etc., etc., etc. Can this be sustainable for our workforce yeah. in the next coming yeah, 10 well, it, years? It creates a very stressful style of medicine. Because you have to cram everything into 10 minutes and it just takes one patient who has a complex problem and, and exactly. suddenly you everything is thrown out of sync. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we'd like to see more flexibility you know, in terms of appointments, more admin support for, for doctors. Um, I have long argued that GPs should be NHS employees, but my colleague, a lot of my colleagues don't really agree with that option because <laughs> I think if they became employed by the NHS, I think some of the problems they've got would disappear. So um, you know, if the roof leaks in the surgery, it's not your not your food to try and sort it out yeah. uh, <laughs> it's down, you know it's not food to sort it out um so so as a kind of gp partner you, you carry a lot of responsibility for your yes. building your, your premises your staff your infrastructure uh, so i've argued that if gps became nhs employees like other doctors and like consultants and other doctors uh, it would create for a better role also i think if the government actually employed gps um people then wouldn't blame gps for problems so for example if the eds are, are full of people no one blames the ED doctors, you know, it's yeah, busy. They say, well, you know, it's, you're working as hard as you can. Yeah. So I think if the GP was the same, they say, well, you're working as hard as you can. You know, the government's problem for not having enough GPs. Mm. Whereas at the moment, because it's independent and GPs run their practices, yeah. they then affect the managers. And so they take the flack for any problems. Whereas if you're an ED doctor, say, as I mentioned, you know, and, and it's really busy, mm. no one's saying, well, you're lazy or whatever. You know, they're all saying you're trying yeah. your best and working as hard as you can. No. To be honest, I have heard the same, even though we'll have weights of, four hours i'll get told oh you're not working hard enough <laughs> and it's just like <laughs> the department's, <laughs> the department's well, rammed yeah, <laughs> yeah the dog's around you and you're kind of seeing people they say it only takes one complex patient exactly and suddenly you know everyone's backed up yeah and you're all complaining saying well i'm, I'm waiting yeah definitely, um, yeah. definitely. <laughs> professor and in fact if people are 10 minutes late they'll start complaining yeah just uh, tell me why you don't be complaining uh, uh, yeah it's, it's, it's i don't know it's all up in the air at the moment Professor, tell us a bit about your time at the, the Office of National Statistics. What what do they do? What is their purpose? And, and what are the roles you undertook? Yeah, so the Office of National Statistics um, are the body which uh, published government statistics. Uh, so what's not, people often don't realise they actually didn't employ a few doctors mm-hmm. in the past to do with things like death certification and mortality statistics and providing medical advice to the, to the, um, uh, to the ONS. So 
Uh, this quite a long time ago, uh, yeah. a job came up there for medical advisor, yeah. part-time job. So I took it on. It was actually very interesting because I was working then in the civil service part-time, yeah. uh, dealing with national databases, uh, dealing with queries from doctors and coroners about mm. things like death certification, um, working with them on publishing outputs around health. So it was a very useful experience. And I had quite a lot of skills in using routine data. Uh, at that time, what people now might call big data. Yeah. In those days, we called it routine data mm, rather than big data, which is the Definitely. kind of term people use now. Mm. But it was a great, you know, it was a great time for me. I spent seven years there. You know, I published a lot, a lot of my work there. Worked, you know, with with civil service, with government, uh, with the ONS on a range of areas. And it was a great opportunity, I think, to, you know, to learn a lot about how government works, and and to use large databases for for research. Definitely. When so you were in a unique position where they are both public sector. What differences did you notice between working at a department or as a civil servant in the Office of Statistics compared to the NHS um, and other lessons we can bring over to become a bit more yeah. efficient? So I think one thing about civil service is that uh, it's meant to be political, so you can't mm. really speak your mind. Like, <laughs> as an academic, I can say what I like, publish articles, criticise the government. Yeah. Um, you can't do that as a civil servant. You know, you can't say, well, I think this government policy is... Is terrible, uh, so it also has to be apolitical. So you, so you have to kind of learn how to speak diplomatically mm. and say something is terrible without actually <laughs> saying it so directly. Yeah. Um, so often, some of the advice went, you know, behind closed doors rather mm. than in public. You know, so you might say tell people, well, this is not right. Mm. You know, it's not going to work, etc. But in public, you can't really no. be critical because you know, as a, as a civil servant, you have to be political and not supporting one party or the other. Definitely. Um, I wanted to ask, how would you feel a lot of researchers, a lot of individuals experienced like yourself are on platforms like Twitter um, and they're making comments and, you know, you recently posted something about the vaccine and stuff like that. Have you experienced any like clashes or negative effects from posting that? Because you are in an accredited position, people may start to attack you and yeah. accuse you. And how do you circumvent those issues? Yeah, you, you will um, get people criticising you. So often people, you know, because I published on, on vaccination on yeah. Twitter and <laughs> I'm quite positive, people say, well, you're a paid-up black, you're a big farmer, you yeah. know, Gates has bought you up or whatever, <laughs> you're talking nonsense. Um, my view is just to mute those people. Yeah. So I've actually muted hundreds of people on Twitter because, uh, you know, I, I feel it's a waste of time to argue with those people. So if someone says comes up with nonsense views, yeah. I'll just mute them so I, so I never see them again or mm -hmm. hear from them again. I rarely block anyone. I only block people if they're sort of racist or yeah, um, threatening violence, you know, that kind of thing, which does sometimes happen. So, but, but, but I do mute a lot of people. So people who come out with nonsense things, uh, it's better just to mute them because, mm. you, because you can't just waste time arguing with these people mm. and it's not a good use of your time. Definitely. So, uh, so people with those kind of views, I'll just mute mm. and move on, uh, you know, to, to the next tweet or to the next mm. message. Do you mm. think it is fruitful for us to display or convey that information because in the world of academia sometimes journals are very difficult to read the general public lay individuals don't have access to them um, and i feel there's a disparity in terms of the information or access to information out there do you think we should promote activities and behavior like that using social media too? yeah no i think twitter's been a great tool for promoting science and particularly in the past uh, 12 or 15 months yeah during the pandemic it's been a great tool for promoting information about about the covid 19 it also formed links with people uh, via uh, via Twitter as well, so I you know I formed collaborations oh, okay. with people, people I never previously met <laughs> just via, via Twitter. So I think it's a great tool for um, for doctors, for scientists, uh, etc. Um, but I think you know just treat it cautiously. 
you don't get too bogged up with it because it's yeah, not your absolutely. your day job. It doesn't pay your, pay your salary. <laughs> yeah. um, and also avoid getting in, into arguments and avoid being offensive. Mm. Sometimes people can say you know things to you that are very offensive and hurtful, yeah. mm. and it's then natural to kind of feel well. I'll say something similar back. But I think yeah. as a doctor, you have to be very careful mm. what you say in public. And so it's no. better just to mute or block those people mm-hmm. and, and not engage with them and, and not say anything that might damage you. The thing bear in mind is people do go through your posts. Yeah. So later on in life, if you're someone quite prominent. Mm. They might spend, you know, go yeah. through your last 10 years, 20 posts, <laughs> yeah. find one thing that you know, which they can use yeah. against you. Um, so you have, to, you have to bear in mind that on Twitter, essentially it's a permanent record mm. uh, or Facebook. And so if you say anything, bear in mind 10 years time down the line, someone might use that against you. And there are examples of people, that's how many people, someone who said like eight, nine, 10 years ago, yeah. has been used against them uh, when they were often quite young and a bit immature. Yeah, exactly. uh, so that wasn't, you know, too yeah. too clever no, uh, and that's been used against them years later so just be careful mm. i think so remember you know it's, it's a written record so anything you say could be used against you in the future so be careful what you do say absolutely mm. when it comes to now um communicating science to the public right do you think there needs to be greater effort in terms of because scientific research it, it's it's incredibly difficult to understand if you're say if you're not in that field if, if you're just a lay person, say not even involved in the medical world either, it's very difficult to understand. And then we've got ju- current journalism, which is it's portrayed in a very I don't know what's the word to use, but I would I would say it's wrong. I would say it's wrong. They take one thing that they might read in a journal, completely misread it, misinterpret it, and put it out there, and it causes public fear mongering and public public health issues. Yeah. Do you think what do you think about that? Do you think there needs to be a greater emphasis on interpreting uh, scientific information and making it, you know, putting it in a format that's understandable for the lay. Yeah, that's a good point. So, um, so with, with the media, the media clearly is a double-edged sword. Mm. Uh, some journalists are very good at, at, at writing things clearly about, about uh, medical issues, public health issues, scientific issues. Others, you know, do kind of twist them a bit or take one study which may not be, you know, the, may not be accurate and then promote that theory. Mm. Um uh, and, and so it is important, you know, I think for academics to engage themselves and doctors to engage themselves with the public. And I think we have, I think over the last year, we have learned a lot uh, about this. So the public have learned a lot through Twitter and and so on through from doctors and academics. Mm-hmm. So now people uh, talk to me about vaccines. They can talk about Pfizer vaccines, AZ vaccines, Moderna vaccines. Yeah. You know, when you think a year ago, nobody could talk about flu vaccine and talk about different types yeah, of vaccines. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but they had no idea. It was just a jab they were getting. But now people, yeah. you know, basically will say, well, you know, what, what do you think about the vac- this vaccine, that vaccine? You know, what about Moderna versus Pfizer versus AZ versus <laughs> Novavax? Um, they clued up. Exactly. Yeah. People have learned a lot. You know, I think it shows that when when the media works, when social media works, yeah. people mm. do get educated. And so I think people people's knowledge of these issues, uh, you know, has been remarkable. So, you know, <laughs> stuff people never would have know, had no idea about a year ago, they now talk about quite fluently what our values, you know, uh, <laughs> case fatality rates and whatever yeah. they talk about them quite fluently and these are the problems of the public not doctors or scientists yeah, no, even they, they can talk about these issues quite fluently now yeah even in my own family they're, they're very well versed with the terminology and the jargon and you know the, yeah. The, the, like, yeah, very well, I think a lot of people become very well versed in all these uh, concepts uh, yeah. public health concepts which uh, you know a year ago they wouldn't have had no, no idea about like exactly. our values no one no, 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 no. <laughs> What about when it when it goes um, slightly pear shaped? For example, the AstraZeneca, um, and then people becoming really fearful of clots of DVTs. 
But when the scientific, when you look into the scientific literature, the risk of DVTs, I mean, comparable to the oral contraceptive pill, comparable to the natural rate of DVTs that were occurring in the communities, it was negligible. Um, yes. What about when scientific information is interpreted like that? Yeah, um, it's very important. Yeah, not to sensationalise that kind of data, which the media sometimes do. So, mm. like a front page story about blood clots risk with AstraZeneca vaccine, <laughs> for example. Well, as you said, the risk was very, very low. In fact, lower than for the concept of pill, uh, lower than the long haul flights. Mm. Uh, so, I think I think we have to try to put those risks in context. So, there is good data. Good, there are good graphics showing how the risk compared to taking the pill, yeah, long haul yeah. flight, etc. And just saying, actually, if you've got a long haul flight, you've got more risk of DVT. Than, with, than for the vaccine, for the example, vaccine. or if you're on the pill, for example, as a woman. Uh, and so, yeah, we need to put these risks in context. And these are very, very rare risks. Obviously, they are, you know, if you get these problems, they're very serious. Of course. But, mm. but they're very, very rare. And compared to the benefits of vaccination, they're very, very tiny, yeah. those risks. Definitely. So we have to kind of you know, promote that positive message mm. uh, and not undermine public confidence in, in vaccines. No, definitely. Mm. Um, just one more point before we wrap up, Professor. Um, when I was doing my BSc at it was like a research-based one in biomaterials. Um, there was a concept of academics being very competitive, not being open to sharing, not open to collaborative networking. What are your thoughts on that? It was a bit, be careful who you speak to. You know, someone might steal your idea. Someone might come and take a grant. Yeah. Can, shine some light on that for us, please. I think COVID-19 has, has helped move some of that uh, concern. So people have shared data. They have sh- come together in large collaborations globally. Uh, people publishing their work as preprints before they appear in, 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 in academic journals. Yeah. Um, so I think some of those risks have been, those concerns have been overcome via COVID-19, which shows that when you work together with, with a wide range of collaborators, so I work with people in the UK, mm. overseas, uh, as do other academics, uh, you actually achieve more by doing that than by trying to be very selfish and, and just hoarding your own data and your own yeah. ideas and outputs. No, definitely. Um, we are conscious of time. Uh, we know you are very busy. Before we conclude, is there any advice you'd like to give our listeners that are junior like ourselves, that do want to have a career in academics, that do want to become a professor like yourself? Yeah, I think, um, as I mentioned earlier, just um, uh, try to develop your research skills by working with uh, more established uh, researchers. Mm. Uh, look for opportunities for fellowships, whether it's a foundation role, mm. uh, a role as a clinical fellow or a PhD students. Um, try to develop your writing skills. Uh, that's very important, and, and you can write, you know, which uh, articles are not research, so editorials, commentaries, reviews, etc., discussion pieces, uh, and those are often quite quick to write compared to research articles, which might take a year or more yeah. to, to to complete. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, do spend time trying to improve your writing skills. Uh, and there are some very good guides on how to do that. Um, so do yeah, do improve your writing skills, and do try to write things, you know, even small things like. Uh, letters to editors yeah uh, you know, to just think about trying to write constantly so you kind of get into the habit of writing things up publishing your work and your ideas mm. as you go along and, and not just waiting for your research article to come out yeah. which can take a year or more you know yeah. before it appears no, uh, from, from start to finish so in that interim period write other things as well and really develop your writing skills yeah and, uh, and don't let failure or rejection hold you back you will be yeah. rejected as an author you know many articles many journals will reject your articles don't let that hold you back yeah and i think it's it's important you mentioned that obviously from the outside it it shows that you're super successful you've published hundreds of papers um so it's nice when you yourself say you've been rejected and yeah i've also had hundreds of rejections as well so uh, (laughs) yeah rejection does hurt and i hope a lot of our listeners 
they continue staying positive and continue yeah. moving forward. It's all a smooth process, you know, there are a lot of ups and downs. Mm. Hopefully more ups than downs. No, definitely, of Absolutely. course. One last thing, looking back on your career, what would you say would be the, the highlight, one pinnacle moment so far that you thought, I'm proud of myself for doing that or achieving this? Um, <laughs> it's a hard one. Actually, appearing on Newsnight was probably very, it was very great. So yeah. I did appear on Newsnight once and I'd rather that, you know, as a lot of people did comment on that to me because, uh, so yeah, it was great to appear on Newsnight uh, yeah. about a year or so ago, talking about contact tracing. So I do really enjoy that, yeah. that appearance. Yeah, amazing. Definitely. I think um, you've done such incredible work, Professor, and we hope you do continue doing the work you're doing. It's highly encouraging for us to see as juniors what we can achieve and, and hopefully follow in similar footsteps to yourself. Um, I want to thank you again. Um, thank you very much. And thank you to our listeners as well. Thanks.